Closer to the horror films you absolutely love. How about taking a piece of one of them home? If you're listening to this at time of release on September 25th and 26th, Profiles in History will be holding their icons and legends of Hollywood auction. You could own screen used props from your favorite movies and TV shows, iconic items from the Evil Dead franchise, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Jaws, Alien, The Shining, Child's Play, Gremlins, Ghostbusters, and many more. The Boo Crew haunts their warehouse and learns how the props are acquired, how they authenticate them, the most expensive prop they've ever sold and the amazing pieces of cinematic horror that could be yours. This is going to be a total blast. Let's go check this out. Actual physical contact. Can you move? Ray, Ray, come in please. I feel so funky. The tales of the screen used props from your favorite horror films. The Boo Crew bleeds their paychecks dry for possessions. Imagine being connected to one of your favorite horror television shows or films in a very tangible and incredibly unique way by owning a part of them forever. That is the magical experience that LA-based company Profiles in History provides every day. If you're listening to this at time of release, their Icons and Legends of Hollywood auction takes place September 25th and 26th. We are at Profiles in History right now to talk all about it with the head of client and consigner relations, Brian Chanis and Joe Mo, catalog editor. Thank you so much for letting us stop by. Anytime, guys. <laughs> Happy to have you. This is a candy store to us because we're big collectors ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. It's insane. I just want to take everything home. <laughs> you can. Right. Yeah, right? All be yours. Yeah. Well, we want to just begin with a little bit of a description of the service that Profiles provides and the history of the company. Profiles in History, we had our first Hollywood-oriented auction in 1995. And uh, since we've become, uh, you know, the largest auction house devoted to the genre around in, in the world, we, of course, cater to anything going from the vaudevillian times all the way to modern films, but of course, fantasy, horror, and science fiction for modern collectors are the most ripe genres that people collect. I mean, of course, you always are going to have Gone with the Wind collectors and Casablancas and so forth, but the favorite Wizard of Oz, that falls in the fantasy genre, so that's one of the reasons why it has such long legs. How do you go about tracking some of these items down? The thing is, ultimately, this collectible kind of had its big kickoff when MGM had their backlot sale in 1970. That's when the studio system was crumbling, and that's when the first pair of Ruby slippers got out, and people started saying, wow, someone paid... 15 grand for an original pair of some ruby slippers. That was an insane price, which was a lot of money back <laughs> yeah. then, but still in retrospect, last pair, a couple million dollars, you know, so it was a relative bargain for sure. And up until that sale, people were really rescuing props and things ephemera that were never meant to last beyond production from studios. People I knew were dumpster diving and finding Willis O'Brien dinosaurs that were crumbling and asking studio heads if they could take them, to which they usually responded, well, what is, yeah, 
get it out of here. So before the 1970s sale work, bigwigs like Debbie Reynolds and people really started creating a general value for collecting these things. Production started taking notice and actually saving them beyond the dumpster. Before that, it was just a, the Wild West. And you were talking about you had done mm-hmm. some work with Forey Ackerman. Sure. Uh-huh. Who is famous, not only for a famous Monsters of Filmland and all that amazing work that he's done, creating cosplay, basically, and, Absolutely. and all that. with Morojo and, you know, in 1939, the first science fiction convention, they dressed up. He often tells the story about going to the New York Times and trying to trick them into getting them in the paper, saying, well, I'm from the future, and I happen to know tomorrow we're on the front page of your newspaper. <laughs> you know, it didn't work, but he tried. But yeah, Forey was uh, in the spirit of collecting. I mean, he created First Fandom, really, and arguably a value for collectibles. And his whole purpose was to preserve them and to share them. And as Brian taught me when I first started working here 500 years ago, he's been here for 7,000 years, we're selling memories. We're not selling stuff. We're selling memories. Brian, more than anybody, is an expert in all of the suites that do very well with us, Star Wars, and it's the iconic suites, will tell you, you know, this may be the first movie your parents ever took you to, the last movie your grandparents ever took you to, and it's multi-generational. So it travels with us through time and keeps us plugged into this incredible escapism, art, craft, and the magic of movie making that's, you know, a unique American tradition. You're saying there's a magical experience in acquiring an item that was used in a favorite production of yours and to be able to hold it. You do feel a real connection to it. When I hear Brian working with people, he's very good at talking to people, you know, because we love the stuff as much as anybody who collects it. And I often hear him talking to people about things and they might be offering something where he'll say, well, newspaper clippings aren't that important. However, the folder that you have them in have call sheets and everything from the production. And it's incredible. Anything that was on set is the closest we will ever get to getting in a time machine and going back to being as close as possible to these things we love. What is the oldest prop you guys have come across? No one's ever asked me that one. People really? always ask the most valuable. Which one's your favorite? <laughs> the oldest? Oh my goodness. Because I would be jumping tracks going to, because we started off with historical manuscripts and that's where Profiles in History, the name got it. So I've, we've handled documents signed by Ferdinand and Isabella dated for. 1492, but that's a different story wow. right now. But, that's crazy. But, but as far as film is concerned, I mean, we've had Chaplin Canes from when he was in Keystone Productions. I mean, that's going back. We've had vaudevillian things. Pieces of um, the stage set for Phantom of the Opera. Some right. Cheney things. Crew gifts and swag from very early Cheney. The Lost sound World. Lost World. Stop motion. Ball and socket armatures. Just about everything from you can creation, imagine. which some of them were used again in, uh, by Willis O'Brien and in uh, King Kong. You start getting the silent era and then it just moves forward from there. But back then, I mean, they used to talking about the ball and socket armatures for stop motion, which is a lost art now, practically, except for maybe Leica Studios and some of the other. They're kind of keeping that alive. But Willis O'Brien and Harryhausen later, they ended up using the armatures like the Cyclops was reused to create uh, some other creature for one of his subsequent productions. They were too hard to make and he didn't have any sense of, of um, archival preservation. To him, this was industrial industrial waste, is what. But, but he would reuse it and repurpose it and cannibalize it to make another production. So that's another battle you have to kind of fight. And it's, some of this stuff is just miraculous that it actually exists. Another important role that you guys play 
are detectives going back and researching authenticity of a lot of these items? What is that process like? It's interesting because, you know, in this sale that we're having the 25th, 26th of September, one of the th- items is the steamship, which was, I think it was SS Venture, is that right? From King Kong, yeah. you know, is the miniature. Now, I say miniature, it's still, what, nine or ten feet long, I think, or more. The thing is, it it looked like it and so forth, and it was then badged on the side with another ship name. We researched the ship name, and it was another RKO film that was used, made nine years later. So what they did, they went into their prop department. We need a ship. They saw the the SS Venture, and they put another little badge, I think, of the Sybil or something. It It was a woman's name. So they used it. Yet again, but it adds provenance because RKO created that film. It was a propaganda movie about uh, World War II in the Navy. And then obviously RKO 1933 for Kong. You know, so, uh, you know, you have to kind of go through the steps and see what's the likeliest story. And that's exactly what it was. And you get information from outside, too. I mean, mm-hmm. the fandom is so intent on all of this stuff. For example, when, when we posted a, a picture of that, of the venture and said, this is you know, available, there was a whole discussion about how how do they fit Kong in that ship? Where did they put him? Did they build a, I mean, they just went for it. You know, they totally went for it. So it's really fun. Not only do some of the people that come in and authenticate pieces are the people that have made them, but when we go and show things at Comic-Con or we show things at Monster Palooza, more than often than not, you'll get a Greg Nicotero or somebody coming up and saying, oh, I made that. I remember just adding to the authenticity and provenance of things. It's a tight community of people who, if we don't know the answer, a lot of people will and we're always talking. So that's a lot of fun that just the dialogue is great fun. How much a part of the joy of collecting this stuff is the thrill of the chase? Oh, as far as getting it, I think the thrill of the chase and getting it, that's for me, 85%. 15% is when you, okay, now we catalog it, then we promote it, which is fun, I have to say. But I think the discovery of just opening up an email and saying, this person's saying that this is really a spec. This would be a fantastic find. I mean, to me, that's the funnest part of it. But then, of course, finding a new home for the piece is always always fun, but it's it, a smaller percentage for me. There's a great TV series that Lauren and I here were addicted to, and it was on Hollywood Treasures on oh, Sci-Fi, yeah, right. which was a, re- it was a look at mm-hmm. the thrill of the chase. Uh-huh. Brian, you were a big part of that show. What was your experience doing that show? What did you think of it? Well, it was an awful lot of fun. It was a heck of a lot of work, obviously, you know, doing that. You don't have a camera over your shoulder every day of the week, you know, and so we had to get the material. Then we had to, we went out and uh, had to do the show also. So it's like double the work, but uh, it was fun. It was fun, but, you know, I have to tell you, you know, it was a lot of, I was not seeing, I had a really young son at the time period, and I was not home as much as I should have been. And so in retrospect, it was a great thing to be involved with, but I'm kind of glad that we're just uh, sticking to the auction side right, right. now. I was know? on the other side. I can give you the perspective of being coerced by these guys. So it was the subject of one of the shows before I came to work here where they tried to separate me from some of my goodies. Oh! They're relentless. They, were, they gave me little winks and nods to comfort me a little bit, but they were relentless. <laughs> That's right. It was stuff that he yeah. had left over. Yeah. That, or that from Forey. Forey had oh, said, yeah. I want 
want you to keep these things. So they said, you could have a new car. I'm like, hmm, Forey's legacy or a new car? I think I'll stick with my stuff. Exactly. It was was a lot of fun, though. You know, it was was quite a great show. I guess we should talk about what is the most valuable prop that has come through this prop house. It's a different genre. So I apologize to your your, your, your podcast. But the most expensive piece, it's a world record for Hollywood memorabilia in general, is the Bill Trevia designed pleated subway dress worn by Marilyn Monroe in the seven year itch. Wow. You know, from the famous iconic image of the subway and then isn't it delicious? Anyway, that sold for $5.52 million back in, I think that was 2011. That was the crown jewel of Debbie Reynolds collection of uh, Hollywood memorabilia. By the way, your Marilyn impression was stunning. I just, I I wanted to stop, (laughs) stop and acknowledge it. I didn't want to just let it slide by us. It was phenomenal. It was like, living it in a while. Believe it. Happy birthday. It's really phenomenal. It's like as if Wallace Beery is in drag doing I mean, It's incredible. Yeah. How about That's in true. terms of horror sci-fi props as far as value? This is a, one of my favorite items that we handled was, uh, and it was two summers ago, our auction 89. The most expensive science fiction piece we've ever sold was an R2-D2 that was used in the original trilogy. I say original episodes four, five, and six, which were the original Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. But uh, And that sold for 2.76 million. Yeah. Is it just collectors buying this? Is it museums? Like, is it just a mix of it's, what is it's it? It's both. Okay. You couldn't have said it better. In some things, you know, and there are multi-layers. You have institutional interest. You have private collector interest. And so some things we have a bank of phones because people participate either in person by phone or they can place bids in real time on the internet or just place absentees. But sometimes we have every phone bidder on a particular lot this just happens to be really popular and uh, it's an international sale exactly so what happens is is that uh, you know you usually have this price starts at a certain level let's say we had something at uh, 10 to 15 thousand dollars the reserve is typically at the low end of the pre-sale estimate so you may have 15 people on it at first then it starts creeping up going to 15 thousand and then you know a lot of people drop off and i call it the bidding pyramid so you have a lot of people at the base of of the pyramid then the as the price goes up, people are dropping off and finally goes down to two. And then finally you have the winning bidder that's at the capstone of the pyramid. So the key is, is get people, as many people as you can involved because it ha- tends to give more energy to drive the price upward than if you just price because some people just want what we call like a jackpot reserve in which means we say well i think the likelihood of having someone dip their toe in the water i mean that's really high and really expensive we try to avoid that and we would try to start at a level that i think could get a lot of people with the paddles in hand that's one of the things that i really enjoy watching brian do brian comes up with a sweet spot range and it's there to invite the most participation it doesn't necessarily reflect the ultimate value of the piece but it gives everybody a chance to participate and I've seen him ask people to sort of price it in, in that range. And they'll say, no, I want this amount. It'll fail. They'll bring it back the next time. He'll put it in for what he thinks. And it'll go $5,000 above what they'd asked for originally. So it's, a, it's quite a science. And the thing you'll realize about this, when you look through this catalog, even though this is a particularly refined sale, there's really something for everyone. These all don't start at $10,000. There's 200 to $400 items in here. There's an opportunity for everybody at every level of collecting to get involved and to get a shot at something 
precious. That's something that I really like about our sales. There's really something for everybody. When Lauren and I started getting into prop collecting as well, it always seemed like, oh, well, collecting movie props, that's, you know, we're never going to be able to afford that. But then you do get in on those auctions and things go for a few hundred bucks or, or you know, less than you'd expect. And there's ephemera out there that goes for less. And it's once you get hooked, though, yep. then and it's, it's a slippery slope. As you know, <laughs> as you know being, being in fandom, if you're, if you're online, you'll see that somebody will have one authentic piece that they've built a whole collection of commercial items around. So they've got their place of pride for that one thing. And that's how it all starts. You know, maybe they get a second one or maybe that's the prize you you know, linchpin lo- of their collection. Oftentimes, the thing is, we, people don't start saying, I'm going to build a collection. They buy one thing thinking, oh, this is going to be my passion piece. Then they go, they, they get so much pleasure from it. And they say, well, maybe what if I got this and this? And then before <laughs> they know it, they've got a collection, you know, and they go, I wasn't really aiming to do this, but it just happens kind of organically. Would you advise people going into the hobby to approach it as an investment? It really should be driven by passion because I've just seen different fields get involved in the speculators and I think it tends to sour the market in general. I like it to be driven by passion because it almost bothers me when someone buys something and then when they come to pick it up, well, if you know somebody that's interested in it, let me know. And I'm thinking, why did you buy it? If you're really that much of a speculator, just call Goldman Sachs or, you know, you just you know, invest in stocks that are a lot more liquid. I mean, you know, something like this, you have to, it takes time to, to do the promotion, put it in a catalog. And plus, you wouldn't want to flip something. The market is better to have it, some water come under the bridge so it's fresh again. There's a sense of discovery. And, and if someone said, oh, this sold for X number of dollars six months ago, what, they kind of scratch their head and, and as they should. I mean, I think it's better to buy it because you love it. Buy and hold, enjoy it, give it pleasure. And then if it's time, you say, you know what? I'm refining my collection. I no longer collect this title. You know, then so be it. Then divest it. You do sometimes get these people that are, they see it as a, a money-making opportunity. And we, hey, we live in a capitalistic society. It can so. be a good trading tool. I mean, yes, there's people that yes. do buy Very things true. at a reasonable price intending to trade up with other people mm-hmm. as they refine collections. You know, the interaction of the whole thing is really great, especially in our genre, sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. People are incredibly passionate and most of them are, I find, are creatives themselves because there's so much craft in in this genre as far as makeup and design and, you know, every element of film that we love. It's almost like it's an enhanced version of every every other form of of film. And so, the people are really in love with the stuff and I think as the more people talk about it, the more you get into people collaborating on collections and helping each other out. So, there's a lot of camaraderie and it's a really nice feeling that people are hoping that other people can enhance their collection and get to that perfection or find that piece they've been looking for for 15 years. It's terrific. Well, we're sitting here surrounded in an amazing collection of sci-fi, horror, and fantasy history. We're going to go over a few of those items on video in a little bit, but let's go into the auction, the Icons and Legends of Hollywood auction. How far in advance does it take to set up something like this? Realistically, it takes at least six months, I think, to do it properly and to... First, you have to decide what are you going to... What's going to be sold and acquired? Um, then we need to have it um, estimated. We have to price it. Then we need to have the items brought here. Some things are so large, we you know we, we sometimes leave them with the consigner. Then it has to be cataloged, meaning it described properly. Have reference images, seen it being used or uh, on screen. Finally laid out. 
and then published and <laughs> posted and the whole nine yards. And so, it, and then you have to promote. And so you want to have time and you want the catalog to land about a month at least before the sale begins. So it gives people time to budget or, okay, I need to come preview it and ask the proper questions. And, and uh, you want to get that registration paperwork taken care of too. And so, that's a tricky sweet spot. It's like if you get a postcard for a band and it's too early, it gets stuck underneath the magnet on another, under something on the correct. refrigerator. So where that catalog lands, so it's going to be on the coffee table for the amount of time it needs to be leading up to the sale is really important. You don't want somebody to put something else on it or forget about it. So I always know it's auction season when I see people selling a bunch of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) All the private collectors start coming out of the woodwork. You're you're right. You're right. They have to to build their war chest and and keep their their gunpowder dry. That's exactly it. So so six months in advance, even to acquire items, like do you guys just go out and go, okay, who's got stuff? Who do you hit up? Do you guys like normal, like studios? We have well, we have, you know, pretty much everybody. Yeah. I and mean, we've handled uh, for Marvel, we had the Captain America, the first Avenger auction. You know, we've had for Lionsgate, we had the World of the Hunger Games auction. So, four for Debbie. You know, uh, yeah, four sales for Debbie Reynolds, who is a private collector. But then, you know, we have just individual collectors who have things. They say, oh, when's your next sale? Okay, it's it's going to be December. I'm going to send you, this is what I'm thinking of selling. That Hey, that's great. I'll take A, B, and D. We agree to a price, you know, because we, you know, you want to have that all taken care of in the contract and consigner agreement. And then they ship it to us, and we have to do our photography. And yeah, and I noticed you got the whole setup back yeah, there. Yeah, the to studio do have it all. Amazing. And you see, the thing is, rather than taking it to a photographer somewhere, keeping it in house is better for security reasons. Less likely to have any kind of incidental damage or extra handling that you don't want to have because some of these things are quite fragile. Some things are very, very tough, but some things are quite fragile. And there's a nice conversation between photography and the reference images and things photography can match the screen image and things like that that gives give people a better idea of how it was used in the film so we have a lot of control over that how many lots are we talking about in this current auction this one's what 950 something around there oh no sorry 970 979 which is a small auction for us our big hollywood auction that's coming up in winter will be around 2,000 items, twice this many. Wow. Well, let's go over some of the amazing uh, horror-centric props and some of the sci-fi stuff and fantasy as well that you guys got coming up in this one that people might be interested in. Very heavy Nightmare on Elm Street. I noticed yes. that. A yes. suite of Nightmare on Elm Street across the whole franchise and some really, really key pieces from famous sweaters to uh, busts and to uh, stop-motion Freddy figures. Just about everything you can imagine, big and small for collectors, but all iconic. What's the big chair? from which one the is wheelchair? that wheelchair yeah that's the wheelchair of doom yeah um, uh, three three, yeah, number three three dream three dream that's right, right. Dream and it's interesting because we this one's full scale and it's tall like the top of the spiked balls on top of the back of the chair are what almost seven feet tall i think and we last summer in june we sold the miniature version you see that's one thing that's cool when you see the vestiges of, of, of you see how they different scenes if you watch those scenes closely you'll see the real full scale chair but then when it explodes there was a miniature that was probably what 10 feet 10 inches tall maybe yeah you know? it was on a base and so it was about 8 feet to 10 like inches model kit you know like wow. polystyrene and, and and they put like a little black cat in it or whatever and 
you know, and it exploded. But they did it with a high-speed camera, and so it, made, it looked very dramatic. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So this is kind of like we're having the the junior version and the senior version. That's awesome. Yeah. I know you got the phone, the iconic oh, yeah, phone. Oh, Freddy's yeah. The tongue sticks phone. out of the yeah. phone uh, from Nightmare on Elm Street, and, the first you know, one. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty well-preserved. I mean, as you guys know, that was right on the cusp of people making things to preserve post-production. Right. Yeah. So it's, I mean, the prosthetic tongue that the mechanicals are still existent is pretty special and we also have a quite a bit of uh, hellraiser material yes. which is which is very popular everything from a full-size figure of uh, doug bradley as pinhead to some of the machinery and other busts and things from production that are really creepy and terrific and in great shape one thing that i noticed that is just i can't even believe that still exists is the dragula oh isn't that yeah, great right you know yes yes <laughs> it, you know it is often duplicated and you know because i think even um butch patrick Yes. Had, he had one commission, yeah, so he, he was around to events. Yeah. But yeah, this one, it originally was a George Barris under his tutelage that was made. And that had its own evolution. Because in the if you look at it closely, the one that we have was its last iteration. It was modified for Munster Go Home. It originally started with Grandpa. It was called, I think, Hot Rod Herman. Yeah. yeah and so episode. Grandpa drove it, and it had the bubble canopy. And so in Grandpa, Al Lewis was a small guy. And then Herman was, was supposed to be using it later. And, and so they removed the bubble. They put a roll bar in it. They changed the lanterns up front with spiders. And they did a few modifications like that. But uh, it's in the Munster Go Home configuration, which was the last time it was seen on screen. But uh, it's really a special piece. It ultimately went to some Chicago museum back in the in the 80s, I believe. And then ultimately it was bought in the, you know, by our consigner. I think in the in the early '90s, something along those lines. Oh my yeah, god! Is yeah. it drivable? Well, it's not. It, now the the drivetrain and trans the engine and transmission had been removed for display, so now it has kind of some phony scoops that are sta- sitting up there because they didn't want to have oil dripping or anything of that Makes nature. Sense, yeah. But it's a small block Ford. I think it may be a two eighty nine or a three hundred two. You could easily make it drivable for a few thousand bucks. It wouldn't be a big deal at all. Oh, but really, just, wow. yeah. <laughs> it's so iconic, though. I mean, they exactly. made model kits of that. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, I think the, even the lunchbox, for, you know, had the Dragula And a it. song. So, yep. Rob yep. Zombie yep. song. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a really a super cool thing. And that, that was one of the few things that sent shivers down my spine. Yeah. Another item off the top of my head would be the uh, teleportation pod from The Fly. I was going to mention that. It's full-sized. Yeah. It's a full-sized pod from The Fly. I think that's... We ranged that at twelve to 15000 so I mean, it's an investment, but I mean that's not crazy, crazy, yeah. right? For what it is, have it yeah. In your living room, exactly, yeah. right? Yeah, why not? You yeah, know, you won't have to go to the refrigerator to get a beer. You just step, step <laughs> yeah. in. And, and we've exactly. got, you know, we got some of my favorite things. We've got some chainsaw items, which I love. We've got yes. a full Bill Johnson Leatherface costume and mask, um, which is beautifully modeled by someone in this catalog. <laughs> yeah, is me, I got to wear it. That imagine, imagine cool, my job. Though. I got that to put that cool. on. That was that, so yeah. Cool. That's not a tough day. Something like so that, happy. would that be from the actor? Authenticity and provenance is really important. But another important part of our business is conf- 
confidentiality. Sure. Not everybody wants to know people to know that they're selling something. Not everybody wants to know people to know where something comes from. And also the buyers don't necessarily want people to know. So that's that's one of our, our major principles here is that we, you know, unless people think it'll benefit the sale or don't care. Right. But well, everything definitely is, comes as close to the source it, as you possible. Know, we know vet it, see where it was, where it came from, even though we may not disclose in the catalog where it came from. So a lot of stuff did come from either the actors, actresses, people that below the line, the big prop masters, set decorators, people that were involved, which is great because you have that direct, you know, it hasn't been floating around. Again, you like that direct uh, lineage to the production. Since it's Friday the 13th. Oh, yes. I, for, I forgot that. Let's That's talk right. about That's right. Our Friday the 13th props. Yeah. We've got, well, we're looking got, at a bust yes. over there. Yeah, we've, that's a great John Beekler bust with the actual components from the makeup. They were taken off and after production and applied to a bust of... of uh, that's part seven. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's got the chain around the neck. Everything is authentic on that piece except for the mask. The mask is a display piece, I isn't it? I don't know. I think that, you know, on that one... And they oh, say that wait, it's real? Let's see here. Oh, no. You know what? It's the other Jason piece that we have that has the real, oh, Jason has the real mask. Jason goes right. to hell, I think, as you're talking about, with a full outfit, I think. Yeah. There's a full yes. body outfit yes, with that the mask. Yes, that one is a mask. That one, that particular one is basically like the makeup test that they had in the makeup department. Yeah, which, which you may not even actually on display. You may want to take the mask off because the makeup's so cool. Sure. And yeah, it's, the, it's the original, mask is more of an, almost so. a distra- distraction. Some amazing stuff from uh, Ghostbusters. That's always, Brian's always searching for that. That's a, one of those iconic, never goes out of Well, out you of have trend. comedy, horror, and science fiction rolled into one. Right, right. You know, so you, it's, it's kind of a no, and, and this stuff is instantly recognizable too. You know, if you have a jumpsuit by one of the Ghostbusters, it doesn't take a genius. <laughs> you know, right. that's a Ghostbusters jumpsuit. But, you know, we have one of the, uh, the the ghost traps with the foot pedal and everything. You know, that was from uh, part two, Ghostbusters 2. Some maquettes of uh, characters. Yes. We have a Slimer maquette mm-hmm. from production, which is just... A, see, those are great things because for collectors that don't own a museum, these are things that are easily displayable on a mantle or in a display case. There's nice things that anybody can accommodate to. You got the uh, Stay Puft Marshmallow Man head, I believe. That's right. There he is. There he there. is. Look at him right now. Unbelievable. Wow. That's right. The thing is, what's so funny and what's so quaint seeing something from the mid 80s it was a guy in a suit yeah whereas now they would just CG that that's the right cows yeah. come home and, but the thing is don't what do you guys think CG loses some of the magic you can tell when it's so oh, definitely yeah. you know definitely. there's still some cartoon physics aspect that your eyes it just you can tell it's not a three dimensional object yeah the movement of CG is a little bit off right it, yeah, yeah. But, but luckily we have big wigs that agree with us right like yeah. the Peter Jacksons and the Guillermo exactly. del Toros who use yes. CG to mask seams and practical things right they, they still love the practical effects so we, we're still safe for, for a generation more I think <laughs> it's, it seems to be like the one thing that CGI has done though is it's a less and less things are probably available from productions now as you're far 100% as, you know, correct I mean what are you going to do save the, the binary disc <laughs> that the <laughs> created yeah I mean it, there's, it, there's something that was not sculpted you know that's the thing I, I love having the three dimensional uh, uh, maquettes or wh- where the ideas came from one thing I also wanted to highlight so many things I want to highlight Harry Potter a pair of his glasses yes. and I love that it has a little tell on the item that is very interesting that's right that's right I mean I, he, this one actually one of the ear pieces he would chew on it I guess in between or you know you take them off and just gnaw on it a little bit but you know you would say well wait well then okay it's a pair of glasses that have some chewing marks but this one came with 
documentation to Warner Brothers Studios. It was rented, leased to the production. And so we have that paperwork with it. So that really sets it aside and adds the, that's what makes it special. If someone didn't have the provenance, I would say, well, it sure looks like his glasses, but I need more. (laughs) You know, you have to really think in the mind of the collector. Well, how do I know that that is what it is? Is there one particular horror fantasy prop in this auction that you guys have discovered is probably the rarest or hardest to get? I mean, some of the alien stuff is pretty insane that that's around that. Super rare. Well, I have to say probably when it comes to just desirability as well, it's science fiction, it's not horror, but still he's a bad guy, is the Darth Vader over there. There's so many things you've read of touring costumes or there are replicas and that one is an Empire Strikes Back. I mean, Luke, I am your father. (laughs) Helmet and shoulder armor. I mean, it's exceedingly rare. We only had one other that was from Empire that we, that, and it was the Bob Anderson version that had perspex. It was like a clear or smoked acrylic that was in the cheeks and in the lower portion of the helmet because he was the fencing champion that was used for the lightsaber sequences because you can imagine being in a duel with that, you know, you have the eyes, you wouldn't be able to see where the lights, where the blade is. So they had to, again, trick photography using in-camera effects. Uh, a lot of people don't even realize that. Because it's so Brian? dark. The force. <laughs> the force, I'm sorry. Wow. He, he could have done it blindfolded. Brian. With the blast shield on. That's so true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a pop cultural piece that is in the sweet spot because I think the big top dog collectors and fledgling collectors are interested in things like the chainsaw Saw. Yes. The Saws family. I mean, that's something that everybody envisions. I mean, it's big, it's juicy, it's 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 so visible. It's part of our legacy, right in that sweet spot between classic horror and contemporary slashers and horror. So that's something a lot of people have their eyes on, as they do the Shining Axe as well. Yes, the, sh- the Shining yes. Axe. Oh so those, those kinds of things get, I think, you know, sure, that's the, you know, these are the gold standard, things like the Vader. But when you come to things that everybody envisions being able to have on their mantle, those are some things that cause a lot of excitement. Oh, for sure. Even a Alien. Certainly Alien is horror and science fiction, but that suit of Dallas, the Tom Skerritt suit, we've never handled one. It's so great, and I love just the distressing that is done on it and everything. It's just beautiful. That's my favorite thing, man. Inspired by samurai warrior you know, oh, yeah. Yeah, wow. uniforms. And Mobius, mm-hmm. and I mean, just all that coming together of where fine art was kind of, after illustrative art, was kind of coming together in the genre, and all of these guys that grew up on pulps, filmmakers that grew up on pulp magazines, and the illustrations style of the 40s, 50s, and 60s started implementing all the stuff by their favorite visionary artists. So you see such a legacy of all the craft and this kind of stuff. It's really exciting to look at it up close. So again, to emphasize, you don't have to be in LA to participate and to purchase these items. No, you can. I mean, it's a live auction. You can come and sit and raise a paddle. You can leave an absentee bid just like you would on a, you know another platform, or you can have a phone bidder bid for you. And those are all complimentary services we provide to make it as easy as possible and to give the bidder the closest thing to being in the room experience of bidding. And then also you can bid through your keyboard online in the virtual auction where you have a live feed of the auctioneer. Anywhere in the world you happen to be, you can bid. And we will call you anywhere in the world you happen to be if you feel most comfortable 
comfortable having a live person bit by proxy and do exactly as you want, we'll be happy to do that. Well, some people, you know, for choose phone. And uh, frankly, I would do that as well because you never know. You're, what if your computer crashes or your yeah. ISP or you have slow internet connection? It's not a guarantee. A phone is a bit more, that's Ma Bell is a little more reliable. We've and gotten so, and, screwed on the internet. Oh yeah, that's happened before. And yeah. been very <laughs> angry. Yeah. Very angry. Sure. Yeah. So you can hear the action, feel the pulse and literally you say, okay, it's 1500. Do you want to go to 16? Yes or no? Okay, yes, 1600. So you hold, And the phone bidder literally holds the paddle and it's very, the best way of duplicating being here. You, you can know? get yeah. nuance you can't get online. You know, True. we can say there were four people in the room against you. You've knocked three out. There's one person there hesitating. How do you feel? Oh, wow. We can yeah. tell you wow. things that you'd, if you were in the room, <laughs> yeah. you'd want to know. You'd want to know. We're not hard sellers. It's your money. Yeah. We're just yeah. here to sort of facilitate you making the best choices possible by giving you the most information we can. And that's what we'd want to know if we were sitting here. You know, oh, there are there 15 people in the room? No, there's only four. One was on the phone. They're taking forever. These other two have already signaled they're out. So you, it's you and this guy. Yeah. You, know? you and one and, more. And it, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's exciting, but it's also, it also is very, very um, accurate. You know, you, you just get nuance and some information that you can't possibly get any other way See, other than being here. This year, I want to host a prop party at our house. Yes. And I want to get it up on the Apple TV. That's how you do it. And have hors d'oeuvres. It, do we it's have to work that day? Can't we go over? <laughs> we got to go over there. Over, eat exactly. some delicious yummy. But it's, that's another thing. Like, if you haven't participated in an auction before, it's really fun even just to watch. It sure. Really is. It, it is. It's I mean, exciting. I, you know, been doing this for, I guess, for working for the company for 28 years now, scary to say. I'm always, every single sale, I'm surprised. There are certain things you just don't know what, you know, the, just looking at the prices. It's almost like when people are at Wall Street looking, oh, what's this happening? What's happening here? And many times it's a dark horse. For instance, the example last year, we had something that was, um, if you remember the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Total Recall. Yes. Okay. Yes. Do you remember when he removed the homing device from his nose and he had this little pronged, looked like a, almost like a gun with a little wire thing that he stuffed up his nose and it grabbed this big orange cue ball looking thing out of his nose. Do your impression. Don't so anyway, <laughs> but the funny tumor, thing is, is that this it? was, you know, many times they make more than one of anything. This was a one-off device because they use it just for one scene. We had a few thousand dollars estimate. It sold, there was a bidding war and it sold, again, including buyer's commission for nearly 40 grand. Who would have guessed? It's a memorable piece, but it's There's not. There's no we, science. We had a, yeah. we had a yeah. beautiful cosplayer's Dr. Strange cape yes. that was signed by everybody because this guy did such a beautiful job. He went to the premiere and every actor signed it. What was that we in for a couple grand? We put that in for two to three thousand, but uh-huh. he, he went to one of the Avengers uh, yeah, premieres the premiere. and he got everyone to sign it. And yeah, that thing, it sold for over 30,000. So we were his favorite guy. Yeah, we were. Bet, right? <laughs> All it takes is two passionate collectors two, right. and one thing. Yeah, 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 literally two, it, you know? because you know, you have to have that underbidder to, sure. to, to go up there. And we had two very energized people. And, and uh, again, that was a surprise. I thought it would maybe, okay, four or five grand, double what the estimate was, but no. Yeah, he was hoping for, going, for that. Going you know, and going. The signer was hoping for Yeah, for exactly. Actually, but part of the key was we started at two grand. It was very available. And, and what happens is a funny phenomenon, the human nature, it's all applied psychology, but they take ownership of it in the preparation and they register and they say, that's going to be mine. Exactly. They start, you know, before the sale begins. And then when people start competing, 
they're trying to take away my thing, you know? And <laughs> yeah. so, you know, and then they start throwing more money at it. And typically they end up spending more oftentimes than what they had originally anticipated. So, and for me, yeah. I just look at it and say, I'm never going to own it. I'm going to look at it as much as I can That's while right. it's here. You know, drink it in. We pretend this can. is our collection for three months. Sure. Then we get a new one. Yeah. Right. Everything goes away. And we get a new one. <laughs> we'll get us a pursuit. We find a new home for it. And then, then, yeah, let's see what else is going to come through our doors. What does your collection look like at home? Both of you. You can answer that because I'll be really quick because I am not a collector. I understand the collector's mind. Well, I do it personally to be as clinical as possible. Imagine, imagine, let's say you guys have our Hellraiser collectors and you knew I in the auction house was a Hellraiser collector. I think it just brings doubt sometimes. I mean, I think it's much cleaner that you know that it's fair play. It sells for what it does. But if someone knows that I'm a collector of something and it only sold for a particular price that seemed unrealistically low... You don't want people thinking, maybe did they not catalog it right or maybe not promote it properly because he wanted it? Right. You, know, right, you just right, don't right. want right. nefarious things to get into the head of the consigners or the buyers that you're cooking. The, truly, you can. I look at it from a very clinical point of view and knowing that I don't collect anything, my consigners know, you know what, that that's not entering into the right. equation. If yeah, that makes sense. That makes yeah, no, sense. My collection is made up of gifts. I've never really chased anything. I've grown up, you know, I lived with Forey and in his 18 room house full of 300,000, 800,000 things. So I couldn't compete. And Bob Burns, who can compete yeah. with that? Oh, Bob gosh, Burns. Bob we Burns. Him We've always lot. been yeah. able to visit these collections. So I've never had the need to own anything. So the things I have, I'd be lying if I didn't say I have some precious things. I have the set of life masks that were hung on Forey's wall of all the classic horror icons. We tried to get those made. from you. They tried, yes. <laughs> Pro- Profiles tried to remove those from me. They didn't succeed. I have right. that because he, he wanted me to, to have them, you know. I have a famous monsters cover art because he wanted me to have that. But other than that, I don't really chase anything. I prefer to go to my friends' houses and come to work and look at things. I just don't feel the need to own anything, you know. I just want to highlight that there is also a Chucky doll, which looks amazing, and a critter, and a Tron helmet. There's just so many amazing things. Yeah, and here. this is we've put this out for you, so this is literally the tip of the of the iceberg. Wow. There's so much behind the scenes and stored and horror is always a great suite in all of our catalogs we usually have a vintage section with a lot of king kong and other things and we always try to accommodate as much of the contemporary horror and crafts and and props and makeup and things that we as we can because people love it i mean you know if you were to break down newbies let's say generation x y and zers you know if they see an old movie i bet you 90 percent of the time it's going to be dracula creature of the black lagoon the mummy it's going to be one of the horror films. Have you guys ever come across anything from the movie The Bad Seed with Patty McCormick? Oh, we favorite. had, we actually, and I think it was maybe, was it one of um, Debbie Reynolds' sales that we had the... I think the, it was the jumper. The, the yeah, of, it was like oh. a dress, or was it a sundress, wasn't yeah. it? Of The Bad Rota. Seed. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I would love that. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's crazy that, yes, to know that that exists. That it's great. out there, because I was well, like, I haven't seen anything, so and, I don't... And they, as you know, they come through again, so keep your eyes open. We get a percentage of things that come through. I get to revisit some of Forey Ackerman stuff as it comes through here to new hands. And, you know, there's a good chance if you keep your eyes open and watch our catalogs that something that you love will come through again. again. Yeah. One last question, too. Do you guys do things like if there's something in particular that a collector really wants to get, maybe it's not in an auction, maybe it's just from their favorite movie. Do they contact you and say, can you guys help me? 
track this down? Typically, yes. I do get quite a few people who do confront and say, hey, and keep an, your ear to the track for this. Typically, we don't do private treaty sales because, you know, we are an auction house and we've just found, okay, let's say someone needed to have uh, something that, and, and I've located it. The person that owned it, they're going to want at least more than one person that was just going to yeah. want it. Gotcha. And so it's almost better and it's a more egalitarian, if you will, that uh, you want to see what the true market price is. And to do that, you have to put it at auction. So I do, to answer your question and to make a long story long, is that I do, if I may say, okay, yes, I'll get you the Lament Cube from Hellraiser, but it's going to be in our next sale. I found it for you, but you're going to have to compete against other like-minded uh, collectors and, uh, you know, keep your gunpowder dry. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's our diligence mm-hmm. to, the, to the consigner, too, yeah. because they know we're exactly. going to get top dollar because we're going to exactly. try to let everyone who'd want to know it's available around the world know that it's available. Yeah, it finds private its market. treaty, you just don't, you know, you sometimes it always enters a person's mind. Again, if you ever did sell your items and you, you sold it privately to somebody, you'd be scratching your head saying, I wonder what it would have sold at Profiles. You just don't know. Maybe it would have gone a lot higher. You know, that way you can kind of, true. okay, that's what the true market price was on that given day. Open forum. You know, everyone, all the collectors know about it and you really do find out what it's worth. That's how appraisers work. You really have to go by market-driven forces, which is an auction. The next one you got coming up later on in the year, if someone's out there listening and perhaps they worked on an Elm Street movie and they have a Freddy glove or they have an item that sure. they want to consign, they just yep. can reach out to you guys? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, we've had a number of Freddy gloves from a, a gentleman, that, actually from the show, a gentleman came to one of our um, appraisal clinics that was at... Uh, Hollywood you know, and Highland? Hollywood and Highland. I remember that. Yes. Anyway, he had, you know, one of the scalpel bladed gloves and one that looked like the bone. Yes. You know, the, you know, the bone glove. It was a guy that was boots on the ground, worked and made them for the movie, kept them. He had the wherewithal to keep them and then we sold them for him. Yeah. yeah. If anybody's interested, just about any question you'd have is answered at www.profilesinhistory.com where you can register for an auction. It's automated or you can submit items that you'd like to consign. And that's the best way to do it. If you send an email with an image and a little bit of story, it goes in our office and everybody, all the departments look at it and get excited and try to figure out where it might fit in the auction schedule. And someone will reach out and talk to you about the item. And then it's a collaboration. It's it's actually a, a fun process. We've arrived at a point where since we're the premier shop, we don't have to strong arm anybody. People are coming to us and we can, Brian will be honest. He'll say, if it's not a realistic amount, if it's a ridiculous amount they want, he'll say, you know what? I don't think we can achieve that for you right now hang on to it. So it's a very straightforward process. It's a lot of fun and um, you're involved in the collaboration of getting it out there and getting the best price we can for it. One of the uh, the, the key items is that, uh, you know, that's nice about the whole spirit of auction is that we're on the same side of the fence. It's not like we're the dealer that's trying to buy it cheap and then sell it for a lot. The more money the consigner makes, the more money we make. So it's in both of our best interests to promote it to the best of our ability. And so that's, you do become a team, a partner with the consigner. That's what I like about it. The spirit of it is pure in, in that regard. And, that makes know, sense. Yeah, and we're gentle. No, we understand it's hard for some people to part with some mm-hmm. things. And I've told more than a number of people, Fori Ackerman, you know, I always asked Fori, I said, Fori, how can you stand to 
Selling you. Well, pal, I've taken care of it for a long time. It can take care of me now. Oh, that's, oh, so, that's some advice so I've nice. given some very, very reluctant consigners when they need a little reassurance. And it's the truth. They had the memories, too. When you do divest, you've enjoyed it and it's ready. We're all temporary curators of these things, you know, and, and uh, there's going to be someone you're going to have to ultimately pass the torch because you knock on wood, they're probably going to outlive us, yeah. you know, if they're well preserved. Yeah. If you want to be realistic about it. That's we steal their souls. <laughs> <laughs> Which we tend to do. That's part of our of a special ad- adapter on our phones. So <laughs> they get older, we get younger, and we just right. stay here. Well, thank you guys so much for sitting down with us. We really appreciate it. Yes, this thank is you amazing. so much. I hope you come for the next one. We'll tell you what other yeah. Yeah. things. Because Definitely. the thing is, this is like not a traveling exhibit, but it's a, certainly a rotating exhibit. You know, you six months, we're going to have a complete different group of items, you know, and it's going to be a surprise what we have. And none of it will ever be together in the same place again so it's quite an experience to come and see it all laid out you know? and it's also cool to get your hands on the hard copy catalog so you could take because it's fun just to have it on your coffee table and sift through yeah. you know even after the auctions though we collect all those catalogs too and just look at all this stuff look My at gosh. this stuff yeah <laughs> <laughs> for well, sure very cool guys okay thank you guys for sure thank you <laughs> That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 68. Special thanks to our guests, Brian Chanis and Joe Mo of Profiles in History. If you're listening to this at time of release, their Icons and Legends of Hollywood auction is live September 25th and 26th. To get registered and bid, head to ProfilesInHistory.com. Follow Profiles on Instagram at Profiles in History. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, see you on the other side. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. The Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo The Boo Crew is Tim Timebomb Leone D'Antonio Lauren and Trevor Shand Austin Wilkin and Rachel Tejada The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand Chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand The Boo Crew is a TSP creation Part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.